in 2006, a terrible tragedy happened where a man named Charles Carl Roberts IV went into a schoolhouse in an Amish community in Pennsylvania and shot 10 of the girls in the school, killing five of them and then killing himself. As this terrible tragedy unfolded before the eyes of the world, as incredibly painful, as incredibly traumatizing, as incredibly life-changing as it was, what makes this terrible event become such an amazing example for us to look at is the love and forgiveness that the families of these killed and injured children showed to the family of the gunman. That as the events continued to take place and unfold, as the um, evidence came to light, we were able to see on television and the news and you know all of these different articles and videos these wonderful godly people through the power of the Holy Spirit able to wrap their arms around the family of the gunman to let them know that they forgave him that he was made in God's image and that he was a son that he was, uh, had a family, that he was loved by other people the same way they loved their children that were gone, and that all of them had lost something. As this stands out in my mind, even all these years later, it is not just the pain and the evil that was done that day that stands out in my mind. It's also the love and the forgiveness that these family had, that, that these families had towards the family of this man that took the lives of their children. Many of them even went to the funeral of the man that killed their own children to offer comfort and to grieve together in the middle of such intense loss. How is a love like that possible? How is forgiveness and kindness like that able to happen, able to take place? It's only through the love of God in our hearts, the Holy Spirit working through us. And as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto of the kingdom, we've been looking at how the law of Moses became a focal point, especially for the religious leaders, to look at their actions, the things that they did, to become legalistic, to believe that they were made right with God by the things they did, that they had earned God's favor and approval by following all of the rules and all of the regulations within the law of Moses. But we also saw how so many people had become disconnected and disenchanted with the connection they wanted with God. They felt like it was just impossible to attain because they could not measure up to the 613 rules within the Law of Moses and all of the oral and cultural traditions that had been put on top of that. And so as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, even though each section has had its own principle, the one overarching theme that goes through the entire sermon that we're going to see time and time again is that God cares just as much about our heart 
as he does about our hands. He cares just as much about what we do inside of ourselves, in our spirit, in our heart, as much as we do with our hands, with our lives, and the actions that we live out before everybody else. That yes, it was powerful what these families did in public for the, for the, the family of the, the man who killed their children. But the actions were evidence of the emotion that they felt, of the, of the reconciliation they were able to find by the way they treated their enemies, by the way they lived their faith. And so today we're going to move into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And our last session together, we talked about how people need to understand the idea of, of their vows, right? Of, of taking oaths and making promises. And we ended that session by, by basically saying that the heartbeat of a follower of Jesus is that they would be people of their word, that they are known by their actions and their follow-through. That when we make a commitment, that we follow through and we keep our word and our promises because God keeps his promises. But we're going to make a shift today as we move into verse 38. And if you've got your Bibles, please, please turn there with me to follow along. But it's important to recognize once again the context that this is set in. And if you've listened to earlier sessions, this is just a repeat. But if this is your first time with us looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the context is so important. The context is key to understanding what Jesus is teaching here, that Jesus is talking to all of these people, whether they are incredibly educated in the religious practices of the Jewish faith, or whether they are foreigners who have just come to see this man who's doing so many miracles, who's turning the world upside down, who's radical, right? The radical rabbi that Jesus was. And so as we look at this, one of the things that Jesus keeps doing, he continues in this process of taking the connection to the law of Moses, of what we call the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and saying, look, you've heard it said, but now I'm going to clarify. Now I say to you, and that's important for a couple of different reasons. First, it's important because as we've talked about before, the religious leaders had found loopholes. They were honoring the letter of the law but they were not honoring the heart of the law. That when they made vows, they would not make make promises uh, by something that was binding. Instead, they would say things like, by heaven, or by the earth, or by Jerusalem. Those are things that are not the classic, you know, binding vows. It's almost kind of like making a promise with your hand behind your back and your fingers crossed, right? That Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's not just following the letter of the law that matters. It's the heart of the law. And because this has been so twisted and mangled and messed up, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount to say that I'm telling you how to not just follow the letter of the law, but also the heart of the law. Many times making it simpler, but by no means easier. And we see that even in this passage as we pick up in verse 38. We're going to cover the rest of this chapter today because these next two sections are connected. Starting in verse 38, it says, the words of Jesus saying to the people, he says, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. 
If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do as much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But if you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, as Jesus goes through this, once again, he is referencing back to the law of Moses and giving this clarification that he is taking people back to what they knew, what they understood. And for Jewish people who had grown up in, you know, synagogue, who had been, you know, especially the Jewish boys who had been raised in their schooling, completely tied to the law of Moses and memorizing it, most of them would have memorized at least the first five books of the of what we call the Old Testament, the, the Pentateuch, right? Many of them memorized much more than this over the course of their time in school because everything was attached to memorizing and learning from the scriptures. But what had happened is people had found an imbalance once again, and Jesus wants them to understand that in the middle of the context they were in, culturally and historically, that God wants us to take things a step further. You see, at this moment in history, in that the nation of Israel was held captive by the Romans. And it's also important to recognize that ever since their turning away from God, centuries before, when they were a divided kingdom of Judah and Israel, that the northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom was taken captive by Babylon, eventually Babylon would conquer Assyria as well, and Babylon would completely rule over what we call the promised land, of the land set aside by God for the nation of Israel. And then, the, of course, the Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians, the Persians were conquered by the Greeks, right, the Seleucids, right, and then they were moved into the, eventually, to the Romans, right? And so as we look at this, Israel has been held captive virtually the entire history of that time. There was a short little period where, you know, Judas Maccabeus, you know, and the Hasmonean dynasty ruled for a short amount of time, but that wasn't all of Israel. It was only a very small area of it. And then, of course, Rome quelled that again, too. So the people were looking for a Messiah who would come as a political leader that would lead a battle and a rebellion against Rome to establish Israel as their own independent nation again. Now, as a side note, this would not truly happen that yes, even today Israel is their own nation, but Israel has not held you know, under its borders the entire promised land ever since the taking of captivity of the promised land by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And this was a, a keeping of the promise that God made with his people in the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant gave three things to the people of Israel. It gave the um, promise of the land, it gave the promise of unity, 
and it gave the promise of the sacrificial system to make them right spiritually with God again. That it promised those three things. And if they followed the Mosaic Covenant and worshipped only Yahweh, the one true God, and did not worship the other gods of other nations, and weren't corrupted by their paganism, that God would give them those three things. But when they turned away, especially to the worship of the Baals, right, that God took those three things away. He took the land away. He took their unity away and spread them throughout the world and the known world. And he took away the sacrificial system that the temple was destroyed, even when it was rebuilt, right? Eventually, we see that it was taken away again in AD 70. So as we look at the situation that, that the people find them in, themselves in, Jesus is trying to get them back to the proper understanding that God is not coming to bring a physical kingdom at this point, right? One day, yes, all of the earth will be put under the reign of Jesus as it is. It is in actuality now, but it will eventually be completely redeemed and restored under the, the rule and reign of Jesus at the end of, 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 of you know, history, basically, in the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth that Revelation you know, the apocalypse there promises to us. And so as we look at this time now, Jesus wants people to understand that his kingdom is not coming in physical force. It's coming in spiritual force. And speaking of the book of Revelation, right, the, the, uh, the, uh, the writing that John did, the apocalypse of John, right, that we call it the book of Revelation, right, that they, this, I mean the same thing, that in Revelation chapter 19, we see an amazing scene, and I encourage you to read the chapter, but Jesus on a white horse surrounded by the armies of heaven comes to conquer his enemy, the beast, right, and, and the armies of the world. But Jesus doesn't do it with military might. He doesn't do it by force. He does it with, it says, the sword that comes from his mouth. And it doesn't mean a literal sword. It doesn't mean that when Jesus opens his mouth, a three-foot piece of metal comes out. That's, that's, it's a symbol. Apocalypses are full of symbolic imagery. That this sword that references power and authority, right? In the Roman world, the rulers and, and, and military leaders carried swords called gladiuses, or gladii, right? That represented their authority. And in Jesus' word carried so much authority that his word, the sword that came from his mouth, destroyed his enemies. Jesus and his people don't defeat their enemies by physical violence. They beat them and defeat them with the word of God. That's why this is important. So I know we've done a lot of preamble to lay the context of this, but now let's look at it again in this proper context and its proper understanding. So Jesus says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is probably one of the most well-known parts of Scripture. Almost everybody, whether they are a Christian or not, or a Jew or not, knows that phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Because this is an ancient law that is, and versions of it, similar ones, have been found all over the world in different cultures. That this idea that the punishment must match the crime. That if you kill somebody, you get killed. If you, just like it says, if you gouge out somebody's eye, you'll have your eye gouged out. If you knock out somebody's tooth, you'll have your tooth knocked out. And we find this in many different places, but the three big ones are in Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus chapter 24, and Deuteronomy chapter 19. Each of these repeat the law that God gives people 
to, on how to live. So in Exodus 21, in verse 24, we hear this idea in, in the context with the verses around it say, you know, verse 23, but if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise, right? All the way down to verse 25 of that chapter. This is the idea is that whatever the crime is, the punishment matches it. And we see this even in Leviticus, in Leviticus 24, we see the situation where a, a man blasphemes God. And you know the, the word given to them by God is that this crime is so vile that the punishment must be death. And they're reminded starting in you know, verse 17, that anyone who takes another person's life must be put to death. And further on, we see in verse 20, it says a fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. And of course, we see in Deuteronomy 19, a repeating in that section of the same law. But I love what Jesus says. Jesus takes it a step further because people had become so caught up in this thirst for justice, for things to be set right. But you see, true justice is not done through punishment. Through justice, true justice is done through relationship. That a person can only find true justice when things are reconciled. Now, in this earthly world, I recognize that's not always possible. That's why that example of the, the Amish community, after that man so heinously killed their children and took his own life, they were able to see through a different perspective. Instead of this human perspective of now justice has been done because that man's dead, just like our children are dead. Obviously that didn't take their pain away. The only way healing could happen was for reconciliation and restoration to take place. And that is God's heart for people. That's why Jesus says in verse 39, but I say, don't resist an evil person. Now that sounds backwards. Why would God in one part of his law say to give an exact punishment for the exact crime? And now Jesus says something what sounds like it's very different. He gives some examples that we need to look at the context to understand. The first one he says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now, the key word here is the word slap, that when a person was trying to insult someone, you would they would slap them across the face. They would do so to, you know, to, in order to show them that, that you are beneath me. You are not as in my, you're no longer my equal, that I'm superior to you. And what they would do in, in very insulting cases, they would take their left hand and they would backhand the person. They would slap them with an open hand with the back of their hand. And the left hand in Middle Eastern culture, even today, and even places in Africa, the left hand is the dirty hand. Because we take for granted indoor plumbing. We take for granted toilet paper and things like that. That in most parts of the world, that when a person uses the restroom, their left hand is the hand they clean themselves with, and the right hand is the hand they do everything else with. You shake hands with your right hand, you eat with your right hand, you touch things with your right hand, you hand documents or things to people with your right hand. To do something with your left hand is your dirty hand, and it was very insulting. So to backhand someone with your left hand would hit them on 
the right cheek. And this would be a huge insult. But Jesus says, hey, don't get into a fight with them. Turn them, let them hit your other cheek. You know, turn your head to the side and say, you're not going to bring me down to your level. I'm not going to compromise my integrity and my character. If you need to hit me, hit the other side too. Now, some people have said this is a, it does two things. Not only does it not provoke a fight, but it also allows you to say, hey, you hit me on the, the you know, right hand side of my face. And I'm going to show you the other one because for you to hit me, that means you have to hit me with your right hand, right? We don't know for sure because that's not, Jesus doesn't clarify, but the context of this with all the others is saying, even though you hurt me, I'm going to take kindness and love a step further. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 4. He says, if you are sued in court for your and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Now, in this context, if a person was so poor that they had nothing to give, no property, they couldn't even give themselves as a, in slavery to pay back what they owed, then their very clothing could be taken from them. But in the law of Moses, it says that a person who has their coat taken from them, so their, their shirt is like their tunic, it was their everyday regular clothing. But over that, they would wear a coat, a, a cloak sometimes, to keep them warm. Because in the Middle East, it gets hot in the day when the sun is out. And most of the time, in Israel and many places, especially in the mountainous areas, it can get very cold at night when the sun goes away. And so people would need their cloak, especially if they were poor and were living on the streets. Then they would need their cloak to keep them warm at night as they slept. And so the Law of Moses says, yes, you can take a person's cloak during the day, as a pledge for what they owe you, but at night you got to give it back to them so they have something to sleep with. And Jesus is saying, hey, if somebody takes you to court and they get your shirt, give them your coat too. Why? To go the next step in love. Same thing's true with this last example. If a soldier demands you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. This is where we get the phrase going the extra mile from. This is where you know a, a Roman soldier could legally, under the law of the land, come up to any foreigner, any non-citizen, and have them carry their equipment for a mile. No matter what they were doing, no matter where they were, and this kept the soldiers from having to wear themselves out carrying all of the equipment. You know, they'd have a shield, they would have a, a pack with clothing and rations and, and supplies, and they could hand that to somebody and say, hey, you gotta carry this for a mile. And Jesus says, hey, if that happens to you, you don't just carry that one mile, carry it the second mile. And just as we know that phrase to go the extra mile means that we are going above and beyond to show someone love and, and compassion. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, look, when people see you as my followers going above and beyond, they're gonna recognize that you're different. They're going to see your heart is not for vengeance. Your heart is not for revenge. Your heart is for restoration. Why? Because God's heart is not for vengeance. Is God a just God? You better believe it. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus went to the cross because God is all about justice. But oh, God is also all about mercy. And I, this is our, our big truth for the day is I treat my enemy as God treats me. I need to treat my enemy as God treats me. How's God treated me? God's forgiven me time and time again. He's given me grace. He's given me mercy. He's given me opportunities to, 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 to get back in 
the saddle again to be restored, not just to slavery, like the sort of the prodigal son explains that parable. Says that the, the the son that went away didn't come back to be a slave. He was restored back to sonship. That's what God has done for me. And maybe he's done that for you too. And so I need to love my enemy the same way God loves me. That's why Jesus carries it on in the next section. The familiar pastor said that you've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? That comes from this idea of Leviticus 19. And in Leviticus 19, one of the things that, that, that God is telling the people is this is how you need to conduct yourself. This is how you're supposed to live your life in front of others. And Jesus gives all of these things and he says this, don't seek revenge or bear grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Most of us think that Jesus started that, but this Jesus actually echoed and reiterated what God wanted his people to do the whole time. And so it's easy to hate our enemies. And Jesus gives all the examples. He says that, hey, if you do what the rest of the world, tax collectors and pagans do, you're not going above and beyond. You're not showing anything different. You're not You're not showing people that you've been changed and you've been given a new way to live. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Other, you know, other portions of scripture and translations say, bless those who hate you. <laughs> do good to those who curse you. Those kinds of things, right, are in other manuscripts and other gospels. And Jesus gives this wonderful, he says, then that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. And he says this, and this is so powerful, for he, God, gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And at the end of the chapter, he says this, but you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now that seems like way too high of a bar to reach that we're not perfect. Jesus is perfect. But here's what happens. When you and I surrender to Jesus and say, Lord, we want to follow you, that I you know, receive your forgiveness, and now I want to follow you the rest of my life. Something amazing happens. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and He makes us holy. He makes us perfect. He makes us righteous. God gives us that proper standing because of the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. This is the only way we can do this, to be perfect as our Father is perfect. That when we have the opportunity to get our revenge, we don't do it. In other portions of scripture, this is echoed, right? In the New Testament where we're, we're told not to seek our own revenge, to let God do it. Now, how do we balance this, right? Does this mean that, that Jesus was a pacifist? As a military man, I, I can tell you that I've wrestled with this idea. As a guy, when I, when I first enlisted, I was not always a chaplain. I was not always a non-combatant. And I had to wrestle with the fact that I was being trained to kill my enemies, right? We weren't being trained on how to be the Peace Corps. We were being trained on how to be the United States military to conquer our enemies in battle. And that means violence. And a lot of people look at this passage and they say, see, Jesus was a pacifist. Jesus didn't believe in warfare. That's not at all. Jesus actually in a different place will tell his followers, hey, you need to sell your cloak if you have to to get a sword so that you can protect yourself, right? Because the time was coming where they're going to be hunted down by their enemies. 
That's, Jesus is not saying that he's anti-war. And, and, and there's a lot of things that could be said about just war. We don't have time for that in this session. But what I will tell you is this. Jesus is not saying that we need to be pacifists. What he is saying is we need to love our enemies. That our heart for other people needs to be one of restoration and forgiveness. That we treat our enemy the same way God has treated me. That God has treated us. And if we've received forgiveness, if we've received restoration, if we've received compassion, if we've received grace and understanding and patience, and not just being forgiven one time, being forgiven countless times, we need to be able to do the same thing with our enemies. The last thing I'll say before we wrap this time up together is that loving our enemies does not mean having a tight, intimate relationship with you, with them. If there are people in our lives that have abused us, that have hurt us, that have injured us in a way that makes relationship with them unsafe. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying, though, is that in our hearts, we need to forgive them, we need to pray for them, we need to bless them. The only way this is possible is through the change that the Holy Spirit does inside of us to give us a new heart and a new mind. And when that happens, we can do just what Jesus said. We can go the extra mile. We can turn the other cheek. We can give more than what's required of us so that we show people that we have a heart of compassion and forgiveness and restoration because we need to treat our enemies the same way God has treated you and me. And that's with forgiveness and love and restoration. This is easy by no means, but man, it's simple and it's powerful. I pray as we put this into practice that our world would see it and see Christ in us. Be blessed.